FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Today's guest is Carol Van Cleef, Counselor Bradley and Chair of the Blockchain and Digital Assets Practice. She leads the firm's virtual currencies and blockchain work to help clients navigate the complex, dynamic, and rapidly evolving issues in these areas. Full bios of our guests are available on our website, financeandleadership.com. Carol, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me today. It's a real pleasure and an honor. I am excited about chatting with you. And I know that you have been working in fintech even before there was a name for it. At FTI, we have definitely been a lot more engaged in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. And you have some amazing stories. Tell us a little bit about your journey and what is it like to really be at the forefront of this fascinating space? Almost from the beginning of my professional career, I saw the inefficiencies of the financial services industry from the very simple example of ATM machines. When I came out of college, ATM machines were just starting to be used by banks. And the fact that you could even use one from the same bank across state lines was something unheard of. Today, we don't even think about it. But that struck me as an ideal use of early technology. And I have been a banking consultant and banking lawyer over the course of my career. But starting in the late 90s, I started focusing particularly on two verticals. One was anti-money laundering compliance. We had come off of the biggest money laundering and terrorist financing case ever, BCCI. And then I also started focusing on emerging and alternative payment systems. And it was really that work that showed me a couple things. One was the potential of the technology, also an appreciation based on the other experiences I had had of the kinds of issues that one was going to encounter as they rolled out the technology. So fast forwarding, in, I really worked on all sorts of emerging technologies in the fintech arena in the late 90s, early 2000s, including doing a lot of work in the prepaid card space, stored value. And at that time, I just had this underlying sense that prepaid was just a transition point, a transition to something else. And in 2008, I got a phone call to represent the founders of a gold-backed digital currency system and it was a gold-backed digital currency system that when we finally wound it down in 2009-10 timeframe, there was $100 million of gold that was backing the system. But that was really, in a lot of ways, the first stable coin. From there, as we were sort of working on bringing a new version of that system out. I started watching this thing called Bitcoin. It started appearing in the papers in the 2009 timeframe, 2010, a little bit more buzz around it. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I got particularly concerned because of all the work we were doing to bring out this new version of a gold-backed digital currency system that I realized I wanted to know more about who was behind this Bitcoin. What was Bitcoin and who was doing it? Because I was afraid, quite honestly, that they were going to mess up everything we had been working on. The regulators, we had been meeting with people on Capitol Hill. We really had been checking all of our boxes. 
with that, I started delving into crypto. And in 2013, I went to my first conference. So that was my real sort of solid introduction into crypto. And at this point, the rest is totally history. But clearly, there was a lot that you learned that you were able to then leverage as you continued into the cryptocurrency space. What was it like in that beginning time period? It was a very different kind of world. I had been paying attention in the mid-2000s to virtual gaming currencies. A lot of the foundation around the world we're in right now has come out of uh, the experiences in virtual games and the early introduction of currencies that were used in-game for playing. E-gold was a very different kind of a system, though. It really had its own monetary policy. And I know that this is going to sound a little weird, but it sounds a lot less weird today <laughs> than it did back when I had my initial introduction to it. Also, and I should probably caveat everything that I say, is that when I got invited in to represent the company and the founders, it was after they had been prosecuted by the U.S. government. The U.S. government had watched the growth of this digital currency system through the early 2000s, and I guess the best I can say became increasingly concerned about what this meant for the future of transactions. So I'm going to take a step back real quickly and say that eGold was actually founded in the mid-1990s. The founder, he saw early the potential of the internet for commerce and recognized that there really weren't good payments methods if you wanted to buy something, you know, take advantage of the internet for commerce. And so he conceived of this concept of using a digital currency that was going to be backed by something that had value that was recognized truly globally, gold, that would give stability to the currency as it was being used by the user. So fast forwarding to the mid 2000s is that the government had become increasingly concerned that eGold was showing up being used in a variety of different criminal schemes. And they indicted the company in 2007, and the government looked at it as being a criminal enterprise. Interestingly enough, when the judge went to sentence the principals, the government asked for a 10-year sentence for the jail time for the founder. And at the end of the day, the judge had him wear an ankle bracelet for six months. In her sentencing memorandum, which she had to prepare according to the rules of the, of the federal courts, she had to explain why she deviated so dramatically from what the government had requested. And what she said is that she didn't believe, one, that they had illegal intent. Two, is that she thought that what they had was not illegal. And then three, that they had bad legal counsel. And at the end of the day, that's really what it came down to is that they had lawyers who really didn't understand the interplay of the law so they could counsel their client appropriately in how to approach how to have conversations with the government to work with law enforcement and so on. And importantly, the company actually had been working with law enforcement worked with the U.S. Postal System in particular, with the U.S. Postal Investigators, and ended up contributing a lot of information that was used to bring down cyber criminals in the sort of 2005 through probably 2015 timeframe. A lot of those cases were built off of 
transactional data coming out of the Eagle system. It's a fascinating case. When I got into it, the government had seized the assets of the founders and the judge ended up giving back some of the money that had been seized. And with that, she told them, go take that money and use it to get a lawyer who can help you get compliant. And that's how I got hired. But it was quite clear early on that we weren't going to be able to accomplish what we wanted to because they had already signed a plea agreement with the government, uh, the kind of plea agreement that really gets in the way of moving forward. So with that, I started working with them on figuring out how to bring forward a new system where they would get it ready, get it packaged up and sell off the intellectual property to a third party. Now, it's in that process that I gained an incredible amount of experience. I feel like I got my, not just a master's degree in virtual currencies, but I really got a PhD in digital and virtual currencies. What I found to be particularly interesting is that if you remember, I said early on, the founder of the company was a radiology oncologist. When he was putting this system together back in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, there really wasn't the framework we've become accustomed to in the virtual currency world now, the types of terms that we use. So what he was doing often is adapting terms that were used in the medical profession. So when you started to talk to a, someone from the government about the system and you started bringing in you know, medical terms to explain some issues around the operations of finance and virtual currencies, let's just say it was a very confusing period. They actually had built out a great deal of anti-money laundering compliance and had typologies on criminal behavior using virtual currencies that even today hold up. Obviously, techniques have changed a little bit, but they saw a lot of that and they were detecting it and they were working through that. Unfortunately, they weren't in the environment that we're in today. There's a very different perspective on emerging technologies. While there is an expectation of compliance with laws, there's been a much more forgiving environment that we've lived in. Because if you had applied the standards that were applied to them back in 2007, 2008, to the crypto space over the last seven, eight years, we probably never would have seen the development of the technology to the extent that we've seen it. I feel very sorry for them because their lives in a lot of ways were very were ruined and you know, in a way that it's very difficult to come back from. And you watch the standards again that were applied to them that haven't been applied in the same kind of way today. And it's, it's a difficult situation to resolve, at least in my mind. I'd like to touch a little bit, Carol, on, on the AML issues. And I think that, you know, we all see a lot of cryptocurrencies that are specifically designed with privacy and anonymity in mind. Yet at the same time, you know, we do have AML rules that, that everybody needs to comply with. What is it that you're seeing in terms of how governments and regulatory bodies will enforce KYC and, and the whole idea of traceability in blockchains? What do you think the future holds there? <laughs> well, how long do we have? to talk. <laughs> you, you've asked a very complicated question. And I actually would like to go back to the Eagle case for a minute and say that during these sentencing proceedings, uh, as I said earlier, the judge ended up giving a much more lenient sentence. She turned to the government and said, why are you asking for this maximum sentence of 10 years in prison? Haven't these people suffered enough? And the government's comment, and this is in 2008, was that digital currencies represent the wild, wild west of international remittances and that we need to set out some rules of the road. 
And if you look at the agreement that was entered into with Eagle, and that that's the way our government does a lot of rulemaking, is by leading through enforcement actions through plea agreements. And in this plea agreement, what they did is they applied to Eagle, so being a digital currency system, one they said had to register as a money service business with FinCEN, which brought it under the Bank Secrecy Act as an MSB. But then in the plea agreement, they actually applied bank standards to it because there's a big difference between what money service businesses are required to do for KYC versus what the banks are required to do. That's an important distinction that, to be honest with you, to this day still has not been fully closed. And then it also imposed other types of what we would consider sort of your, the usual stuff for AML compliance. It had to have the program. It had to be compliant in all the different kinds of ways with the anti-money laundering as well as OFAC requirements. So bottom line is we had a framework that was put into place. And I will tell you that I appeared in 2013-14 timeframe, even 15 and 16 before crypto groups. And I would talk about these experiences and what the government expectation was, and it was not well-received because the attitude was, yes, these, the crypto is intended to be anonymous. Why should we be collecting this information? We're infringing upon the rights of individuals to be able to conduct transactions without having the government see what they're doing. So a lot of tension on that point over the years, but at the end of the day, I think you know as well as I do who's going to win on some of these battles. And I'm going to underscore this. The rules with respect to money service businesses are not the same as the rules that apply to the banks. Banks are required from the day a customer walks in the door to get certain basic information about that customer and to verify that information name, address, a government ID, date of birth. That's not required in the crypto space or with money service businesses, which are the set of rules that the crypto industry applies. So what the crypto industry has done is try to develop risk based processes and try to make decisions as to at what point they should collect more information about the customer. So we really have seen this all over the place. You've seen that you could go on to a number of exchanges, certainly around the world, and just put in a, an email address and you can open up an account and start transacting. The bigger exchanges, especially those that are registered and licensed in the US, are doing more, are collecting more basic information up front. But we still have a big gap on how much information they're collecting after they get those basic pieces of information. You know, at what point do they start to understand more about the customer? Do that sort of due diligence, what we think of due diligence and enhanced due diligence around the customer relationship. You know, what's the right number at which you do that? And again, having worked for many, many years in the banking industry doing AML compliance, I know how the banks look at what they're they're doing. But in this space, it's still trying to get them to understand, you know, I can't tell you how many exchanges will say, I'm just a small exchange. And I say, well, how much activity do you do? Oh, I do 10,000 a week or I do 10,000 a day in transactions. And I'm like, that's not really small. <laughs> you know, small is a little bodega where they have one or two people walk in a day to do a $250 money transmission. You know, we've got that kind of disconnect, but they see themselves as being small because they're only one person or maybe two people. But the amount of activity you can conduct across a system like that is quite significant. So bottom line is, is that one, we don't have the level of rules out there yet.
that in terms of collection. So it is a, a little bit of a wild, wild west. There's a lot of discretion that's left up to the industry. Now, I'm going to say something, take that a step further and say that one of the issues we have is the technology continues to evolve at an incredibly rapid pace. So as soon as you address one piece of it, we're moving on to the next piece. We have the centralized exchanges. And then we have this whole emerging category of decentralized exchanges where purportedly there's no there there. <laughs> you know, there's not, not someone running it, somebody watching the compliance, someone to be held responsible for the compliance so that anyone can come onto that exchange. All they need is a crypto wallet and conduct activity. We've got a variety of different kinds of challenges as we're taking sort of the old world model of KYC as we know it and trying to adapt it to this new world. And at the end of the day, I think often we lose sight of why we're doing this. It comes back to the fact that it's really for the safety of all of us, for the soundness of our financial systems, that we don't have the criminal element engaging in activity in an anonymous kind of way that would undermine our personal safety and our financial safety. No, I totally agree, especially as somebody who previously used to work for one of the regulators. The safety and soundness of the financial system is paramount and it's front and center. And it's part of the reason why you're seeing a lot of these regulations. And, you know, we have the whole AML 2020 regulation that also came out and has some additional specific rules associated with it. And I just want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier earlier, because as you were talking about just the decentralized exchanges, I was also thinking about just overall broader decentralized finance. And we talk about MSBs and what they're doing, but there are also these other platforms where people are able to go ahead and just, you know, for example, like lend money to others without necessarily being a bank. And, and so there are all these other additional platforms that are being created. Where do you see DeFi going? It's being applied across the board across the world in so many interesting ways, some ways that can be very beneficial to some communities. But at the same time, it is something that's outside of the norm from the standpoint of the banking system. So where do you see DeFi going? I'm going to start with a quote from Joe Lubin, who spoke at a conference last week, and someone asked him about what the world is going to look like in 10 years. And what he said is that DeFi will be finance. So I think that's a great starting point to answer your question is that, first of all, what is DeFi? You've mentioned lending. It also involves deposit taking. It also involves investment and insurance. Can't minimize the fact that DeFi is ultimately part of uh, the DeFi package will be decentralized insurance. So it really is a very broad term to just talk about how we're in the process of disintermediating the systems that we know now with the technology. And I think the big question is the extent to which the existing infrastructure in financial services will adapt to this and incorporate this into what they're doing. We're talking about eliminating intermediaries. We're talking about a lot of changes that will allow you and I to engage in a financial transaction without anyone telling us what we should do. If you want to borrow money from me, there'll be a structure that's set up that will hold you accountable in much the same way as if you took a loan out 
with a bank, but it would be to me, the person from whom you're borrowing the money from. So these are the kinds of changes we're going to see. I think we're going to see major changes in the way that we craft what we know as insurance now, insurance product that protect our investments, protect our property. It really is about taking the best of the technology and using it to disintermediate those that can be appropriately disintermediated. Now, having said that, I think we also reach a point of maybe too much disintermediation. And recent headlines had a key player in the Ethereum story announcing that he was leaving crypto and he was doing it because of personal safety. And why? Well, you know, if you were in Ethereum at the beginning, you are probably very wealthy today. But there's been a big push for using crypto to become your own bank, that you own your assets, that you have full control over those assets. Nobody is owning or controlling them for you. But when you start to think about it, where are you going to put those assets? It's like back to the future, putting our money under our mattress. And what does that do? It then starts to expose you to physical harm that you know, people know that you're big into crypto and that you may in fact have your thumb drive for lack of a better term with you that has your crypto, all your information about your crypto holdings. Then you have to pull back. And it really has been an interesting moment for me in the last week when I saw that article. And I thought to myself, you know, everyone wants to be in control, but this is what being in control means is that you are putting yourself at risk. And so maybe it's better to have a place where you can put your money, you know, and then you can sleep better at night and know that you're not going to have a home invasion. These are real issues. And we've seen a little bit of this coming out of a data breach that happened a, a few months ago using one of the uh, major wallet providers too in the crypto space that there are many of these major players who are there early that do have full-time security contingents around them now. It's one of those things that I'm sure going into it, folks were probably not thinking about it being a risk per se. And now it's becoming more and more of an issue. So that is pretty interesting. The show is about finance and leadership. So I'm definitely curious about your leadership style. Has it changed over time? I've always tried to be inclusive, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. I like to get people involved in the issues and try to introduce them to items that'll be of interest to them. I will say in the crypto space has been particularly difficult over the years because in the early years, uh, I had people say to me, why are you wasting your time on crypto? It's never going to mean anything. Over the years, I remember 2016, I had a college classmate who called me up and said, you know, I've been listening to you for several years now talk about this Bitcoin stuff. Now everybody around me is talking about it. Can you come talk to my C-suite? And finally, the moment when I think it was my brother-in-law that said, oh, she's not as crazy as we thought she was. <laughs> now, does that go to leadership? No, it's it's more what I see out on the horizon. It's that old, the old basketball skills. But I've tried over the years to be involved in, in multiple organizations and be a thought leader in the process. And I think where we are with the evolution of the discussion around crypto. And I really am distinguishing that from blockchain, but around cryptocurrencies, stable coins, uh, the central bank digital currencies. That's been a long process of people coming to, you know, having these fulsome discussions that we're now having around it. Unfortunately for the industry is I don't think they're quite yet there where they need to be to be able to be fully engaged and make sure that those discussions go in the right kind of way. So sometimes I feel that, you know, my leadership skills have been sorely tested. 
But it's been an interesting journey over the last several years to know where things need to go by trying to figure out how you get people to where they need to be. And Carol, is there anything that I haven't covered that you would like our listeners to know about you and the great work that you do? Well, I I appreciate it. First of all, again, thank you for having me on today. I guess I like people to keep an open mind in terms of where we're headed. We are in the process of one of the most transformational periods, certainly in the area of finance, but in the way of us conducting our business transactions that I think we've ever experienced. I think that it's still early for a lot of people to fully appreciate this, but I think our policymakers are starting to grasp the ramifications of what we're going through. It's a bit of a labor, labor of love for me because I have, from the beginning of my career, I was very fortunate to be under the mentorship of, I think, one of the finest thinkers about how public policy can affect an industry and banking industry in particular. And it gave me a unique opportunity to be able to look and understand sort of the different kinds of forces that come to play. And I hate to say it, but history does repeat itself. In a lot of ways, we're seeing the same kinds of issues that sort of come back in a different kind of way than that we've seen in the banking and financial services industries over the years. It feels very tumultuous for the crypto space right now, but it's not something that's totally unprecedented. And understanding history will help some in getting us to that next phase. I know that there are many people in the, in the crypto space that think this is the end-all crypto. It's another stage, another phase in the journey. And I really hope that more people will come along with us on this. I've heard it said that uh, history may not repeat, but it does rhyme, which I thought was pretty interesting because you do see the themes over and over again. And, and we do live in interesting and fascinating times. So Carol, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. You're someone that I absolutely think of when it comes to this field as a pioneer and and somebody that we can all learn from and certainly admire. So thank you so much. Thanks again. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.